If you have a Bible with you, would you please turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to borrow one from these black chair pockets. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. We're turning to Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament of the Bible, so probably about three-quarters of the way through. There is no shame in using the table of contents. Um, We're turning to chapter 5, and if you're using one of the Bibles we provided, I think that's on page 689. This morning we're beginning a new series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is not just one of the most famous parts of the Bible, but one of the most famous writings in the history of the world, especially in the West. So even if you've never opened the New Testament, chances are you've heard a quote or at least an echo from the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Judge not that you be not judged. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, the golden rule. Or maybe most famously, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. If you grew up in a Western country, even if your family is irreligious, chances are you've been exposed to the Sermon on the Mount. But, as English Bible scholar John Stott said, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. It's a part of the Bible that everyone's a little familiar with, but few of us have spent enough time with to have experienced in our lives the effect that God intended when he put it in the Bible. And the reason I want us to spend some time in the Sermon on the Mount, what I'm asking that God would do through it, is this. So our church exists, we as Sunrise Community Church exist, to introduce people to Jesus and help them grow by his grace. That's why the church, the church exists. That's why this church exists. It's to make disciples of Jesus. Help people who don't know Jesus to know him and help people who know him to grow in their walks with him. And, and before we can know how to make disciples, we need to know how to be disciples. And this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is one of the richest, fullest, most humbling, most thrilling descriptions in the Bible of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to follow him. We want to get face-to-face with Jesus and hear from his lips what it means to follow him, what our lives should be. And so this morning we're going to look at just the first verse of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verse 3. I promise we will pick up the pace after this to get through it one verse at a time. That would take us two years, and that would be time well spent but I, I would test your patience, I think. And so we're going we're gonna to try to get through this over the course of the summer, the next four months. And I want to focus on just this verse, just this first verse this morning, because it's sort of the gateway to the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't understand this verse, you're not going to understand what Jesus is saying in the rest of it. So let's get, we're going to get a bit of a running start this morning. We want to see what's been going on in Matthew's Gospel to this point. So let's start at chapter 4, actually verse 17 through chapter 5, verse 3, and this should be on the screen behind me as well. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we want to, we want to receive the words of Jesus with the appropriate sobriety and quietness of heart. Um, we know that when we read your word, it's you who are speaking. And so we want to, we want to be quiet in our, in our hearts. We want to be quiet in our minds. We want to hear what you have to say. We know that anything your son tells us is not just true, but it's food for us. It's good for us. And we want to receive all the good you have this morning. And so please come and help us hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask three questions of verse 3, and then I want to draw out three implications for our lives and for our reading of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, you should have an outline in the back of your bulletin if you got one. And the first question is, what does it mean to be blessed or blessed? It's that first word in chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be blessed? The New Testament was written in Greek, and the, the word in the Greek that's translated there, blessed, there's not a good English equivalent. Um, so you could translate it actually happy, but it's, it's much deeper than happiness. Happiness for us is just an emotion, right? It's, it's really superficial. Like Adam, Pastor Adam, the other pastor, he, on Friday in the church office, he had Oreos. And I ate an Oreo and it made me happy, but it didn't make me blessed, okay? The, the word is much deeper than that. Some other people translate it fortunate, but that sounds to us kind of like lucky, which isn't quite right. One translation I read used flourishing, and that's a little better. This word describes the good life, a life that should be the envy of everyone around it. So in the Bible, it often appears in wisdom literature, like the Psalms and the Proverbs. And the way it's used, the author will say, do you know who is really thriving? Do you know who's really living life the way it was meant to be lived? Do you know who's really who's a real hero, someone you ought to aspire to be like. They'll say, blessed is the one who, whatever, and they're saying, this is the life you want. Envy this, live into this, become like this. So in, in the first Psalm, Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, um, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The, the psalmist is saying, he's not saying God will bless you if you do this, he's saying that is the good life, the life shaped by the Bible and not by culture, that's what you want to be like. Or in Psalm 32, which we looked at two weeks ago, it says, blessed is the one who's forgiven. Proverbs 8 says, blessed is the one who listens to wisdom. They're saying, this is the happy person. This is the good life. This is what you want to be. When this word is used in the Bible, it's always an invitation. It's always saying, this is the good life. Follow this. Live into this. Aspire to this. And what makes that amazing, in chapter 5, verse 3, 
is what Jesus tells us here is the good life that we should aspire to is a life almost no one would naturally want. Because he says the people who are truly happy, fortunate, flourishing are the poor in spirit. Which brings us to our second question, who are the poor in spirit? The best place to understand what it means to be poor in spirit is a parable Jesus told in Luke chapter 18. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So a Pharisee is like, in the first century, like the epitome of a great religious person. A Pharisee is someone who ticks all the boxes, who does all the right things, religious hero, okay? A tax collector, so at, the, at this time, God's people were under the rule of the Roman Empire, and they didn't want to be, right? They didn't choose that. And a tax collector had betrayed his people, went to work for the Romans, and was now collecting taxes that nobody wanted to pay. And often the tax collectors collected more than they should as a way of enriching themselves. So one is like a religious hero. One is like a total traitor, right? These are the two people that Jesus says went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus tells us, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying the way the Pharisee relates to God is full of self-satisfaction and confidence. He thinks he's pretty great. And he thinks God thinks he's pretty great too. He's not like other men. He does what's right. He fasts. He gives 10% of his income away. He's rich in spirit. He thinks he has something to offer God. The tax collector on the other hand, knows he doesn't belong with God, right? He stands far off. He doesn't even look up. He looks down. He has betrayed his people. He knows that he has. He's utterly failed to live a righteous life. So he beats his breast in grief and says that his only hope is mercy. He's poor in spirit. He he knows that he has nothing in the bank, nothing to offer to God. He's a beggar for mercy. And Jesus says he's the one that goes home with God's approval. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to know that you are absolutely spiritually bankrupt. To know that before God, you're utterly destitute. The rich in spirit. Now, if you're rich in spirit, you might, you might acknowledge that you've sinned, right? Very few people think that they're perfect. But the rich in spirit think that they're still doing okay, that their, their good deeds outweigh their bad. So they, they think that on the whole, they're still pretty good. And the reason they can believe that is that they have an incredibly superficial view of what God requires. They think, well, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't cheated on my spouse. I act ethically at work. I go to all my kids' sporting events. I give to charity. On the whole, I am above average. I think I'm doing okay. But the poor in spirit know that doesn't cut it. They know that underneath, even their good deeds, they're proud and self-righteous and self-centered. They don't murder, but they hate They don't cheat on their spouse, but they look. Even their good deeds, they mainly do just to be seen by people. They despair of ever being clean in God's sight. So my kids went through a phase not that long ago where the way they wanted to eat their peanut butter sandwiches was open-faced, and the way that they would eat it was they would take the whole piece of peanut buttery bread and they would put it right on their mouth 
and start by biting a hole in the middle and then working their way to the outside, right? So you can imagine what their hands and their face faces looked like after they'd you know, accomplished this feat. And so when you'd give them a wet paper towel or a wipe to clean themselves up with, by the time that they had wiped their face, it was so covered in peanut butter that when they were wiping their hands, they were just actually depositing more peanut butter back onto themselves than, and getting anywhere close to clean. Even their cleaning up was dirty. You won't be poor in spirit until you see that even your attempts to clean up are dirty. Even your attempts to do right or wrong, you, you, you do the right thing, to, but you do it to impress people or to impress God or to feel better about yourself. You, you ask for forgiveness not because you're sorry, but because you're embarrassed or you want people to get over it. It's, you, we almost never do the right thing just for love. And when you see that, when you see that you have nothing in the bank, nothing to offer God, that you have so completely failed that your only hope is mercy, you'll be poor in spirit. And Jesus says, that is the blessed life. That's the good life. Jesus says the, real, the really happy people, the people to be envied and congratulated are those who know their total moral failures. Now, are those the people that we congratulate? No, we would see that as some kind of mental illness. We would say, I've never seen someone with so little self-esteem. Like, they really need to pick me up. We need, we need to help them see their worth and their power. We need to help her find her goddess within. We reinforce with each other, you can do it. You're worth it. You're a good person. Becoming poor in spirit is not on anyone's life goals. It's not today, and it wasn't then. But Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount by saying, these are the people who are on the right track. They're the ones living the good life. The people who really have it together are the people who know they're a total mess. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which is our third question. What is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven is referred to other places in the Bible as the kingdom of God. It's what God has been working through all of history to accomplish, to restore. It's what was lost in the Garden of Eden. So in Eden, God was the king. And Adam and Eve and all the animals were his happy servants, right? They, they submitted to his rule, obeyed him completely, and they enjoyed all the benefits of his reign. They had his presence, his provision, a place to live that was free of sin and fear and death and conflict. It was a kingdom of joy, a kingdom of peace, and it was lost when humanity turned from God. And the story of the Bible, the story of all history, is God working to restore what was lost, to bring people back into right relationship with him, honoring him as king, enjoying all the benefits of his reign. <clears throat> Excuse me. And at the end of history, it will be perfected. God's people will live again with God in a new creation, once again free from evil and death and sadness. He will be their God, and they will be his people. The kingdom of heaven, God restoring his rule and reign, is the only thing that will heal this world. And it's what Jesus came to bring. So look back at chapter 4, verse 17, which we read. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, it's happening. God is restoring what was lost. That's why Jesus begins by, he's calling these disciples, right? He's calling Peter and Andrew. He's calling James and John. He's saying, I'm going to make you fishers of men. He's saying, we're going to gather God's people back to him. It's why he goes about healing the sick and those afflicted by evil spirits. Because where Jesus is, the kingdom is. The creation is already being restored. It's already being made new again. So when Jesus says, 
of the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, these are the people who will be reconciled to God. These are the people who will know him now and will spend eternity with him in joy and peace. So let's put it together. What's the verse saying? It's saying that the people who are truly happy, who are truly blessed, are those who know they're completely spiritually bankrupt because they're the people God accepts. The people who know God and will live with him forever are those who know they don't deserve it and depend entirely on his mercy. Those who think they're pretty good, who count on their moral balance sheet, on the good they've done, on what they've given away, on their baptism or their confirmation, those, the people who think they have money in the bank are out. And the kingdom comes to spiritual beggars. Now, what does that mean for our lives and for the way we read the Sermon on the Mount? Three things. First, Grace is the only gate into the kingdom. The only way to be reconciled to God, the only way to know that he is your God and that you are his child is to receive it as a gift. Only the poor in spirit enter the kingdom because only the poor in spirit can receive it by grace. Only they can say, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the heart of Christianity. You can't come to God until you see that you have nothing to offer him. You can't be filled until you see that you're empty. Jesus didn't come to tell us the way to God. He came to be the way to God. He didn't come saying, do this and then you can enter the kingdom. He came to do it for us. So back in chapter 1, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant and he knew that he wasn't the father, right? So he, he resolved to divorce her quietly. But an angel appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He doesn't say, so he, you know, he's going to be great because he's going to give us a new law. He's going to be a rescuer. That's why he came, not just to teach, but to save. He came to live the life we should have lived and die the death we deserve to die. He came to take our record of sin so we could have his record of obedience. On the cross, he was emptied so we could be filled. He was excluded so we can be embraced. He became poor so we can be made rich. The only way to come into the kingdom is to have the king take your place. Nathan Cole was a farmer in the American colonies in the 1740s, around the time when there was a a major revival of trust in Jesus called the Great Awakening. And he wrote, he had a journal, and he recorded in his journal what it was like to hear George Whitfield, who was the the great preacher of the awakening. So he said that he was working one morning on his farm, and he heard that Whitfield would be preaching nearby. And so he just dropped what he was doing. He ran, and he grabbed his wife and got the horse, and they got on it, and they just took off to get as fast as they could to where Whitfield was preaching. And he was preaching to a crowd of probably three or 4,000 people, which was, it's big now, but it was really big then. And, and Nathan Cole wrote in his journal, he wrote, Hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. He says, my, I had this foundation. I was building my life on the idea that I could be good enough for God. But when I heard him preach, I realized that foundation was no good at all. My foundation was broken up. I saw that my righteousness could not save me. He wrote that later he was back at his farm walking and praying when suddenly he realized the answer. He said, It seemed as if I really saw the gate of heaven by an eye of faith and the way for sinners to get to heaven by Jesus Christ. 
I saw what free grace was. I saw it was nothing but accepting of Christ's righteousness, and the match was made. I saw I was saved by Christ. That's it. He saw that his righteousness could not save him, but that Jesus' righteousness could, and he accepted it by grace. He entered the kingdom by the only gate there is. As Augustus to Plate, he said it in his hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, he said, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Have you entered the kingdom by this gate? Have you forsaken all your credentials, all your good works, all your religious activity, and trusted in Jesus to pay it all? And if we as a church are going to introduce people to Jesus, are we prepared to welcome the poor in spirit here on Sunday mornings? Are we prepared to to welcome people who have failed morally, who have checkered pasts and maybe checkered presents, people who know that they're messed up? Are we going to be a church for people like that? I hope we are. And And I think we can be because we've trusted a gospel of grace. If the kingdom is for spiritual beggars, then no one is too bad, and no one is too far off, and no one is too needy for Jesus. And if we really get that we're so bad, that the only way for us to be brought in is through the death of God's Son, then we can be a safe place for messed up people. We can be a church for the poor in spirit. Second implication of this verse, those inside the kingdom can and will live out Jesus' teaching. It's only once you've entered the kingdom by grace that you can understand and live what Jesus says here. If we get this wrong, this is incredibly dangerous. If you read the Sermon on the Mount not thinking, this is how to live once I'm in the kingdom, but this is what I have to do to get into the kingdom, then it will absolutely crush you. It's incredibly challenging and searching. So just as an example, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that if you really want to obey the commandment, you shall not kill. It's not not enough to just not kill kill anybody, but you you can't even nurture hatred or contempt in your heart. He said, if you really want to obey the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. It's not just enough to be physically faithful to your spouse, but you have to be faithful in your thoughts and in your desires. He says that it's it's not enough to just pray and give to the poor and fast, but that those things have no value at all unless they're done to please him and not people. Jesus presses us incredibly hard on how we handle money, how we treat people who don't like us, how we relate to God's law. And if you read it thinking, this is what I have to do to get in, you're going to despair because there's no way to do it. But that's not what it's for. We enter the kingdom by grace. Now, does that mean we don't have to obey what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? No, right? Look at at just maybe the next page, chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Or chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, on the face of that, that seems to contradict what we said, right? We said the kingdom is for the poor in spirit, those who know that they have totally failed. And then Jesus says, Oh, but you can't get in unless you obey unless you're righteous. So which is it? It's both. And here's why. One of the key ideas in the Sermon on the Mount is the idea of wholeness. 
integrity, the idea that what's in your heart should match what's on the outside. This is the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So the Pharisees were hypocrites. They were only righteous on the outside. But the righteousness that Jesus wants for us is deep righteousness, righteousness of the heart. This is how you come not just to not murder, but not hate, not just to not cheat, but not lust, not just to pray and fast and give, but to genuinely do them because you love God and want to please him. And Jesus is saying, if you really get grace, if you enter the kingdom as a beggar, then your life will change. You'll be changed in your heart until your life looks like the Sermon on the Mount. That's why people whose righteousness, whose righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees who don't obey God, they can't enter the kingdom because they never came by grace in the first place. Now this, I will admit up front, is going to be a trivial analogy, but did you guys see Black Panther? Some of you did. So do you remember, just you don't have to say it, but do you remember what the marker was where true Wakandans could identify themselves to one another. Do you remember what they did? They would pull down their lip, and they had a blue tattoo on the inside of their lip. It was how they showed that they belonged. So in Christianity, an obedient life is not how you get in. It shows that you are in. It's the mark of belonging. If you've come by grace, you'll be changed until your life is righteous on the outside. In John chapter 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When we trust in God's grace, we are born again. We become something new. We get a new heart with new capacities for love and for righteousness. When you become a Christian, your conscience will start bothering you in ways it never did before. You will begin to want to obey God, not to get something from him, but just to please him and honor him. So you don't read the Sermon on the Mount. Please don't read it and think, this is how I must live for God to love and accept me. Read it and think, God already loves and accepts me, and this is how I want to live. This is how I, what I must, with God's help, become. I must, with God's help, become an honest person. I must, with God's help, be done with anxiety. I must, with God's help, love my enemies. Resolve to live this way. Beg for God's help. And when you fail, trust his forgiveness because the kingdom is for the poor in spirit. And when you read the sermon this way, these calls to integrity, they won't condemn you. They'll thrill you because you'll see a picture of who, with God's help and by his grace, you are becoming. Grace means that we can come to God as we are, but we don't stay as we are. And that's the kind of church I hope we increasingly become as we study the Sermon on the Mount together. A community where people can come as they are, but they don't stay as they are, but increasingly embody this beautiful teaching. And as we do, we'll be living the life Jesus calls blessed. Now, third and final implication, living out Jesus' teaching is the good life. Now, our culture will almost certainly not applaud you for living this way. Jesus is going to call you to humility in the Sermon on the Mount. And the culture, the world rewards self-promotion. Jesus is going to call us to truthfulness. And the world applauds white lies and spin. Jesus will call you to radical generosity. And the world endorses endless acquisition. Following Jesus will not make our lives easier. Jesus' followers then could expect, and Jesus' followers now can expect, flack for living this way. It won't fit in. And yet this life bears his approval. He says, this is the good life. These people are the fortunate ones, and we are. Those who enter the kingdom by grace have the love of God now. 
We have new hearts being shaped to match God's. We have a community of fellow travelers, a true family. We have an invincible hope of life forever with God. In this world, we will suffer and grieve and experience loss, but our future cannot be taken from us, and that's the good life. So this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus' invitation to you to the life you were made for. The one who loves you so much that he gave his life for you is saying, live into this. So will you trust him? Will you join us the next four months as we ask God in the Sermon on the Mount to make us the church he wants us to be so that we can compellingly introduce people to Jesus and help them grow by his grace? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that there is a gate for us into your kingdom. We thank you that you didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. You came for those, not for those who are well, but for the sick. And that's what we need, God. We need to be healed in our hearts. We need to be brought in by grace because we can't, we can't make it on our own. And so we thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus to bring us in. Jesus, we remember that you said, fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so we receive it as a gift by grace this morning. We receive the gift of righteousness and eternal life. And we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit into our hearts, that you would give us the new life that causes us to become from the inside what you've called us to be in this sermon. I pray that you would make us a holy church, a godly church, a church that reflects the character of Jesus and that you would use us in Cayman to show the kingdom and to help more people find the gate in. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.